Hello, my name is Sergio Marrero, co-founder of Rebel Methods, a community by founders for founders, and your host of the Impact Innovation Podcast, where we bring you innovation news from experts in the field and events. And we aim to give you the insights to keep you on the edge of innovation and accelerate your timeline from zero to impact. And our next episode is from the Social Enterprise Conference that was hosted by the Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in 2018. The next panel is Investing in Place, Entrepreneurship in Underserved Areas, with representatives from Entrepreneurship for All, the Boston Impact Initiative, the Social Enterprise Greenhouse, and the Social Initiative Forum. I hope that's why you're all here today, because you're interested in hearing about local solutions to local challenges. And we're very lucky to be joined by a fantastic panel. We have Deborah Freeze, founding director of um, Boston Impact Initiative, John Conley, COO of EFRAL, and Kelly Ramirez, who's the CEO of Social Enterprise Greenhouse. You're going to hear more from them about what they do um, in just a second. But just to get a sense, how many people here are students? Lots of students. How many are entrepreneurs? Some of you might be both. Any investors in the room? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we all know where we're going we're to talk to you after. Great. Um, so I'm, I'm, in these spaces, we often have students, entrepreneurs, I think they're sometimes interested in hearing as much about the individuals and how they got to where they are as they are interested in hearing about the actual work they're doing. And so I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourselves and spend a, a minute talking about kind of yourself were you an entrepreneur? How did you get to the work you're doing? And then, you know, a sentence or two about your organization as well. Okay. So I'm Deborah Fries and um, student entrepreneur investor. It's okay to be all of them. Uh, so I was an HBS student a while back, and that was the dot-com era. I became a dot-comer. There's a whole long story about that, and it's pretty sordid and beautiful at the same time. And um, in the experience of being part of the bubble, and the bust, um, I really questioned a lot of things I was taught in business school. And that led to a pretty profound, what I would call, unlearning journey, 10 years of unlearning a lot about uh, what I had been taught about capitalism. So um, I'm going to raise my hand as the post-capitalist on the panel, <laughs> and we can talk about that. Um, and then to come back and after a number of years in the social sector, particularly working in the global south, again, deprogramming and unlearning capitalism and colonialism, um, I now am an investor who you might call an activist investor using capital to direct money from where it's accumulated to where it has been extracted from in place. So that's what the Boston Impact Initiative is, which we'll hear more about. Thank you. So I'm John Conley. Um, I spent decades in the biotech arena in Boston, Cambridge, and in strategy consulting here in Boston, which is what brought me up here. Um, I have the 90s and early 2000s you know, career riding the biotech life science wave. Uh, it seemed to work well for someone like me, who had education and connections and networks and so on. And I started putting time into nonprofits that did social service for those who didn't have those same connections. And as part of that, I started volunteering for this project in the Merrimack Valley, uh, which has become Entrepreneurship for All today. So in old mill cities, now known as gateway cities in Massachusetts, like Lowell and Lawrence, amongst others, E4All goes in and creates these networks for skills, for mentorship through experience, for access to capital, to people in and around those communities that have their own ideas 
about wanting to start a business, in some cases a nonprofit, and don't have the, the ability to pick up a phone and get advice or figure out how you begin or how you get trained and the rest. So I started as a volunteer there. I came to this university in 2014 as an advanced leadership initiative fellow. We all have to have projects, and my project was how can I go back to EFRAL and take it beyond the cities where it seems to be doing a lot of good and take it beyond that, right? So since then, we've gone to the south coast of Massachusetts, Fall River to Bedford. This year, we opened in Lynn. And we have ambitions to go into dozens, literally some 50 cities, of which there are hundreds that could use a program like this across the country over the coming six, seven, eight years. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Kelly Ramirez. I started my career in international development. So I was in the Peace Corps, then I was a foreign service officer, um, funding NGOs in Eastern Europe. And uh, that was where I was sort of introduced to the concept of social enterprise, um, working with NGO leaders that really had to learn how to innovate when you know, uh, international funding was redirected to places where it was more needed. Um, and so I moved to Providence from Michigan about nine years ago. Uh, took a really great um, nonprofit, a chapter of Social Venture Partners, which I know exists here in Boston also, um, and pivoted the business model, which just wasn't working, um, and turned it into, uh, we call ourselves an ecosystem builder for social entrepreneurs, so we work statewide. Um, we've really worked to build up um, the, the community, business, policy makers, students, entrepreneurs, um, and we, our theory of change is we really believe that um, all of these entities need to be working together um, to make systematic change. Uh, so we have a co-working space, uh, a loan fund, all sorts of workshops, a network of 250 amazing business entrepreneurs that work with our social entrepreneurs. Um, and similar to e for all we're working and providing consulting services and other geographies. Great, thank you. So, as hopefully you all know, and as you've as you started to hear, we're talking about place-based investing here, and as Deborah started to talk about, that means both recognizing the assets in a community, the community is really the core part of your strategy, and also recognizing some of the historical barriers to entrepreneurs or folks who have, who've been in those communities and, and have been struggling, perhaps, um, based on systems put upon them. And so we're going to first talk about the place part of the place-based place-based investing, and then talk about kind of the people and the ecosystem part as well. And start thinking about your questions, because there's going to be lots of question time as well. So can you talk about kind of the place part of your investing strategy? How does that make the work you do different than it might be if you weren't taking a place-based approach? Sure, do you want to keep going? Yeah, sure, for this question. So uh, I didn't say what Boston Impact Initiative does. So um, we are a place-based impact investing fund with a focus on economic justice. And our place is Eastern Massachusetts. And if we went, the reason that we are place-based and not either sector-focused, which a lot of impact investing funds are, or uh, much just generally broadly impact investing, um, is when I look at the, pro we're systems thinkers, so we look at how every problem is interconnected. And when I think about which problem do you want to solve in a disinvested community, the reality is like a poor diet leads to poor performance in school, which leads to chronic unemployment, which leads to unstable housing and crime and recidivism. And so where do you step in? So our 
conventional ways to reduce it to one problem. But the reality is that our problems are deeply complex and interdependent. And so when we take a systems approach, we realize that we can deal with the complexity of problems by shrinking the geography. Let's get really intimate with the place that we're in, and then we can take a systemic approach where we deal with all of the problems and really address them at the level of place. So that's the rationale behind it. And the place that I live in, which is Boston, happens to be the number one most unequal city by income in the country, right? So the median household net worth of a, a white family in the Boston area is $247,000, right? For a black family is $8. So now you imagine you're a black entrepreneur and you want to get your business off the ground, right? No personal savings, no credit history, no friends and family you can turn to, the social capital isn't there, and so on and so forth. So the set of systemic problems are very much localized to the unique conditions in our place, which are different than the unique conditions in a rural place, which are different than the unique conditions elsewhere. And so when we look at our place, then we say that the racial wealth divide is a thing we want to solve, and now we can zero all our energy into the relationships, the unique conditions, the assets, and the deficits in our place to say what's the core problem here that we want to work on. So that's how we're focused on place. Great. Sure. So um, when I looked mm -hmm. at the Boston-Cambridge area for what do they have for accelerators and incubators for entrepreneurs, right? There's nearly 50 of them. And uh, our initial financial backers had helped start Mass Challenge, and they were interested in bringing those same advantages to where those networks don't exist now. So in the 26 gateway cities in Massachusetts, other than a handful that are affiliated with like a medical school or university and are meant for those students who are educated and so on, they, they just don't exist. So when we pick the areas that we go to, we look for a population concentration, you know, at least 70,000 roughly and go up to 200,000 and we might go larger. Um, the concentration allows us to recruit mentors, people who have experience, who are willing to donate their time, limited but still incredibly valuable. They can be former entrepreneurs, they can be business executives, they can, they can cut the gamut of skills and talents, but they bring advice and specific time in a high-touch way to our entrepreneurs who are recruited from in and around the cities that typically in Massachusetts have poverty levels that are twice the state average. Right? Typically over 20%, the state average is about 11% of families. Um, and so while we don't target particular <coughs> genders or ethnic groups by the way we approach and the place we approach, and it is entrepreneurship for all, we admit people, some of whom have very high levels of education, some of whom have very low levels and are literally first generation immigrants to the country, the mixture we find to be actually uh, very beneficial for everyone and our demographic profile, now that we've done a couple <coughs> hundred startups through our accelerator programs, is three quarters women and more than half people of color and more than half immigrants as well. So something in our approach is bringing about the creation of networks from people with experience to people who don't have access to the kind of mass challenge type opportunities. And you wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't go out to what we call under-networked or under-resourced mid-sized cities. Um, great. So we, um, I moved to Providence nine years ago and um, was blown away by the size of Rhode Island and the possibilities with the network. So 
um, very quickly learned about sort of the social enterprise landscape and realized that there was an opportunity to take um, the entire state and think of it as an ecosystem. So we really worked on um, identifying the social entrepreneurs, aggregating the community, thinking about the systems-based approach. Um, and to be honest, you know, nine years ago, uh, when I would go and talk about social enterprise, and I was trying to position it very much as an equitable economic development strategy, you know, people would look at me like I was the tree hugger in the room, and they would say, you know, yeah, 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 that's, that's really nice. Those aren't real businesses, and those aren't real jobs. Um, and so we've really been pushing this agenda that, in fact, these are place-based businesses that, in aggregate, are creating a lot of jobs, and jobs for all, and these are businesses that are not going to move, move and, and go wherever the tax benefits are better. Um, so finally, you know, we're getting a little traction. People are starting to see that these are real businesses. And about two years ago, we started adopting a cluster approach. So instead of saying we work with all do well, do good businesses, which we continue to do, we said we have some specific focus areas, which are areas that are aligned with the economic development priorities of the state. So local healthy food, health and wellness, water, energy, and, and the environment. And this year, we're adding aging to the mix. And with that kind of twist, um, all of a sudden, people started to get it. So I could say we work with uh, entrepreneurs who are creating access to local healthy food for everyone. And that resonated with funders, uh, potential volunteers. We were able to really build our pipeline. And you know, sort of the next step that we see in kind of building this ecosystem is to more actively play a role in pipeline. To, because to be honest, like our pipeline is one of our um, biggest challenges. Like we need really good committed entrepreneurs. We have all the programs and the network and the funding to support them. Um, and so we're encouraging sort of our community to say, hey, there are these problems in the community. Um, here are some solutions that are working in other places, and we can, you know, kind of build a supportive team if we can identify an entrepreneur that wants to work on this particular um, issue, challenge, etc. So we're really thinking much more about, you know, rather than waiting for the entrepreneurs to come to us, which we always will do, we're also really thinking about how can we play this um, active role in making sure that the businesses that are needed in our community are being developed. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And I, it sounds like we heard a little bit about some of the barriers to these entrepreneurs and these ecosystems. Can you talk about kind of the asset-based approach that I know a lot of you take and what assets you see in the communities you're working in that folks might not think about when they're thinking about place-based investing, they might think it's like a do-good, do-well kind of thing, but what are you seeing in the communities that's actually really special and is allowing your work to be successful? Yeah. Yeah, anyone who wants to go first, I don't want to go first, so I'll give you guys a chance. Oh, no. <laughs> I liked being last, oh, okay. I got to hear you and think. Um, so, uh, well, we're definitely similar to E for All, although we didn't start with the mission of um, really being an inclusive ecosystem and incubator. About 60% of the entrepreneurs that come to us are female, and we're about 25% um, 
people who uh, have barriers, I would say, who come into our pipeline. And that's a real, that's another um, real focus area for us that we, you know, are, the, the best solutions that we see, honestly, are coming out of the communities that we aim to serve. But finding those entrepreneurs and ensuring that the programs and the community that we have built um, feels like a very welcoming place is, is a challenge for us, and we're really, really intensively working on that. Um, the other thing that we did uh, about a year ago that has been somewhat controversial, uh, we, we very actively decided to engage the business community in our work. So we partnered um, with B-Lab, and we've launched a statewide campaign called Best for Rhode Island. Um, and uh, there are best four campaigns in Philly, New York City, uh, Colorado, and, and we're sort of, you know, the, the very small campaign, which is actually uh, getting a lot of traction, again, because of the, the place based and the size. Um, and the whole concept of this is, while not every business maybe can be or desires to be a B Corp, every business can and should be doing good in the community and, and, and should be challenged to do more good in the community. So it's a whole campaign about recruiting businesses, getting them to take a B Corp light assessment, and then helping them, building a community of businesses that work together to have more impact on the community. And we sort of say it's transformation. So we, you know, again, to the pipeline issue, um, when we got started nine years ago, you know, we were very purist, and there weren't that many um, social entrepreneurs coming to us. And now with sort of this big tent approach, we believe the entrepreneurs come to us, they have a good idea that's having a positive impact on the community, and we say, okay, you get into our community, you're gonna drink the Kool-Aid and do more good and you know, have this whole transformational effect. So um, our hope is we start with this big tent and it becomes a bit of a funnel and we say, okay, well, have you ever thought of doing this and doing that and, you know. Um, so it's a little early to see, you know, we've been kind of doing this for, I don't know, nine months now. We have maybe 125 businesses that are participating. Um, and you know, we hope that that will, uh, for better or worse, if you get you know a big manufacturing company to take some steps in the right direction and move on that path, you can have you know much quicker impact. So we'll see. Well, a little similar to that, um, what what we found, and it's pretty conclusive now, is there are aspiring entrepreneurs absolutely everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that uh, when we expand beyond Massachusetts into other cities, we're gonna find people coming out, right? So we hold these community outreach events, we arrange supportive networks of advisors, often local business people and banks and that sort of thing, who want to invest in their community. Um, and we invite individuals who have ideas about entrepreneurship to come to pitch contests, right? To apply to one, pitch your idea um, in front of a panel of judges, get feedback on your application, whether you're admitted or not, and there's some prize money as well for that. And at these events, which are very well attended at rooms, you know, three times this size, usually filled, um, when asked, you know, how many people out here think have an idea for a business? And I have to answer them, right? And um, when asked how many people think of themselves as entrepreneurs, 
not so many hands go up because many people have the idea they've got to be Zuckerberg, right, to be an entrepreneur because that's what the media describes. But um, the, the, the assets in the community are really the ambitions and the resilience and the grit and hard work of the people there who want to come forward and take advantage of an opportunity to build something. And then, in addition, for every uh, 15 entrepreneurs, startups that we put through an accelerator in the winter and the summer of each of our sites, we seek to recruit 45 mentors from in and around the, the area. And initially, that's, that's a little tougher, right? It takes a year or so of momentum to be able to build that up. But they, too, uh, can come, and the, the majority of them keep doing it year after year. I mean, to them, they, they tell us that this is an empowering and inspiring um, experience they've had uh, to, to be able to pass on skills of self-empowerment to people who might not have been exposed to the model. Do you mind if I just really quickly? Um, I totally agree with that. Like, I think if we could just somehow empower, you know, more people to feel and self-identify as entrepreneurs, um, it's just transformational. Okay. Um, and we've always done a lot of work with the universities, but we're now going down to the high school level and just really sort of trying to expose young people to like, you can, you can do this. And you know, for myself, um, every time I had like a job transition, <coughs> I'd go through this like, oh my gosh, like who am I? I have no skills. And now I'm sort of like, oh. I think I'm kind of an entrepreneur. I'll be able to figure it out, you know. So it's so empowering. Like, what would you rather be, like a government worker or like an entrepreneur? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, well, I, 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 I'm a public policy person, also. So. Yeah, no. I mean, but you know, being innovative within, you know, within government can that like we're not going to make the changes that are needed if we, you know, without that, and it's happening, and, uh, you know, I just think the self-identifying thing is really powerful. So I think I know that when, uh, we're investors and we rely on folks like these guys, um, you're, I wish you were in our state, um, to, 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 deal with, to deal with the, the individual stepping into entrepreneurship and advancing and strengthening, so, so that's not the lens we use, because that's what we know that they're working on and that those programs that deal with that, we would have asked, okay, if we're looking at underserved areas or disinvested areas and we know that there isn't financial capital that much, there isn't the kind of social capital that can access financial capital or the access institutional knowledge, so what is there? And that's where we see the, the, the two things that we notice and rely on very deeply are the organizing sector, the activist and organizing and grassroots sector, which is so powerful, as well as the faith-based sector, because they're both spaces that gather and connect, where you have these strong webs of relationship. <clears throat> and so we sort of say, if we can go to the places where people are already are in co coordinated action, share values and share commitments about change, what happens if we add entrepreneurship into that? And so an example would be, and I know we're going to be talking about some of the people that we work with, but the, the one of the, the companies in our portfolio that we are most delighted to be in relationship with is an organization called Cerro Cooperative. And it's a worker-owned organic waste recycling cooperative. I think Laura Holmes is, is Laura speaking here today? Yep. Okay. N your panel? Okay, so ask Lucas about, you'll, you'll hear from, uh, you'll hear from, the, go to the next panel. Um, 
And it was folks that were coming out of grassroots organizing. One was a, a black organizing initiative that was doing a lot of advocacy around quarry reform, criminal, criminal justice reform. And the other was a Latino organizing initiative. And they came together and they said, you know, we're doing all this advocacy and policy work and we're still not claiming economic power. What would happen if we came together, formed a worker-owned cooperative, and took advantage of a new policy around collecting organic waste that's coming into the state? and then raise capital. Well, how did they raise capital? That he's organizing. They did, you know, they did the kind of crowdsourcing for the beginning. They did a, a, a direct public offering, like a crowdfunding campaign for capital. They came to people who want to fund co-ops like us. And so they relied on the extraordinary web of interconnectedness that's in some of these communities that are built around, like I said, their faith-based institutions and their organizing initiatives. And so it's another huge asset that generally there's this brick wall between that and entrepreneurship and finance. And so if we can break that down and connect all that up and like how do we fuel those communities that already have relationship, which is what we need for the next economy, and bring the kind of capital in that's community capital into those systems. That's a huge asset that we have. Great. And while we're on capital, if anyone else wants to jump in on how you think about traditional capital or non-traditional capital differently based on of the work that you're doing in the place you're doing. I would love for you to jump in. Do you have more to say? I have something to say. Okay, so uh, I was taught <laughs> about, you know, maximizing profit, right? You know, buy low, sell high, the whole, that whole thing. Okay, so the effect of this strategy that we have had, which is basically extractive finance, which is we focus our capital on maximizing growth, profit, efficiency, and returns, right? And that, that's our orientation. And so you get the extraordinary wealth divide that we have in our country, where the more wealth you have, the more wealth you make, the less wealth you have, the less wealth you retain. So I'm talking about wealth and not income on purpose, right? So we've seen that the change in the 1980s, the lowest income and wealth earners had the greatest amount of growth on a percentage basis. Today, the 99.99 is seeing 6% growth and, and the bottom is moving towards 0% net worth. So we can no longer, my humble opinion, continue with our extractive financial practices that where wealth accrues where wealth already is. So how do we think about capital that is actually trying to close the wealth divide. Now, I'm not talking, a lot of people will be like, redistribution of wealth and reparations, and I love that conversation, I actually believe in it, but I think we're not trying to redistribute cash. We need to redistribute productive capacity, the opportunity for disinvested communities to produce goods and services for themselves. And you cannot keep getting market rate and better returns and make that adjustment. And it doesn't, and philanthropy is not going to fill the gap. We actually need investment capital that thinks very differently, has an entirely different orientation around risk and return, and I could go on and on about that, but I'll, you know, that really rethinks risk and return so that capital can be used and recycled and move into the places where it's most needed. Not by just giving it away, because that doesn't actually build wealth where it needs to be built, but reasonable returns, three, four, five percent returns on capital that then distributes the opportunity for productive capacity to get rebuilt, I believe is the role of capital today. So I'll um, uh, 
the disparity in wealth that you described is a main motivator for the people who back my organization, right? <coughs> try to do something to help correct that. And um, I know you've uh, been a party to investing in small graduates, uh, and you just described sort of your, your uh, perspective about it, which is wonderful. I can tell you I've been impressed in a way I wouldn't have expected with how much capital our entrepreneurs have been able to raise. Um, so we've launched, by the end of 2017, 250. Of those who have finished a program in a full year, which is about 170, when we survey them, and we get you know good responses, but not 100% responses, we find that the total capital that they've raised is over $11 million. And about a million of it or so is, is loans, but the rest of it is personal savings, friends and family, <coughs> grants certainly, which they get, and then there is a, uh, some amount of angel investing, and I think uh, investing of the kind that you just described, Deborah, which is looking at this is a great thing, I'm going to do it, and my you know, return isn't my first and foremost objective on it. But I've uh, been impressed because we, for all, look to be able to provide both pitch prize money to begin as seed capital, and we work with some interest-free loan organizations to provide non-interest-bearing loans um, to our graduates, and some we, we brought into getting ready to attract angel investment, but the majority of those are uh, entrepreneurs who have reached out to their communities and extended families in most cases, and found pockets of money that I wouldn't have thought were there. Um. I have sort of a less pe uh, optimistic experience, actually. Um, I wish you were in Rhode Island. Maybe we should talk about this because, um, you know, I, I like I feel like the missing link of our organization is really the access to capital. So we do have a loan fund, um, and we don't have any shortage of funding for the loan fund. But I'm not convinced that it's the capital that our entrepreneurs want or need. Like it just hasn't, we just haven't quite figured it out um, in terms of like what what risk are we willing to take and um, and so I've, I've seen many um, pretty amazing entrepreneurs give up after a couple of years because they just can't do it any longer. Um, we tried to raise an impact fund about three years ago. We got our, we were aiming to raise between 10 and 15 million and, and have it be an SVIC impact fund. We maybe got three to four million of commitments and sort of the lead just got tired. Um, and then we've started, we, we definitely have investors in our network. Um, and I hear about individual investments that have been, <coughs> been made, but a lot of the investors react exactly the way you did. Like, I don't really want to be known as the investor in the room because, you know, we're all, like, even me, I mean, we're a nonprofit. Like, I, I'm, go, I'm going right to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, so I think although, you know, there's a lot of talk about impact investing, it, it's, for whatever reason, we haven't been able to really figure it out, um, and you know, and and it's a bit of a chicken and an egg because some some of the people that we have been talking to say, "Well, show me the great deal flow," you know, and um, we're getting better deal flow mainly because of this cluster approach. Because to be you know to be honest, like. 
when we were really, really like, oh, we work with the real purest social entrepreneurs, um, it just, like, the financial returns weren't there. And I, I often go back to this story of um, the philanthropist who really got sort of our, who made our pivot possible. Um, about four years ago, I tried to launch this for-profit subsidiary called Buy With Heart. It was going to be, you know, the Amazon.com for social enterprise products. And my fundraising days were going to be over. I was all excited. I was totally bought in. And, um, and I went to him and said, hey, invest in this business. And, you know, and then SEG is going to be sustainable in perpetuity. And he, he said, okay, I'll invest in the, in the you know, the terms that he came back with were just not great. And I was like, what? He's like, Kelly, I'm, I'm an investor right now, not a philanthropist. And it was, you know, I, I do believe that there are people that, you know, I, I think the tide is turning, but it's hard to, it's, it's challenging to find that. Right, right. No, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, because great, and we're gonna get more into this later, but I think sometimes these notions of challenging the conventional ways we think about about profit making and control and power can be hard to wrap our arms around. And so at risk of getting us totally off the rails and breaking probably like the number one rule of panels, Lucas, can I put you on the spot for a minute? Because we have such a concrete example of how this is happening in our own community right here with Boston Ujima Project. And I would love to hear just for 30 seconds if you could tell us all what Boston Ujima Project does, and maybe how it fits within kind of the solidarity economy movement right now. Sure. Um, so we are structuring the 501c3 charitable loan fund, and there are plenty of those in the country. What distinguishes us sort of two main things. One is that we're raising from all different types of folks, from non-accredited investors, foundations, philanthropies. So we're trying to democratically raise capital, and also democratically allocate capital. So all of our investors are given one vote. That's the web projects we fund. And that's something that hasn't really been done, at least to our knowledge. So that's Boston Gmail in a very short nutshell. We'll talk more about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, so you're thinking what, like, what? wow, this is Boston Ujima project. U-J-I-M-I-I-M-A. Um, and they're speaking soon. And so as you're thinking about like, how do I see this on the ground? Like you can see it. Um, and there's lots of entrepreneurs here who are probably doing it in other ways, but actually this too. Um, so to zoom us back in and talk about the, the people on either side of these equations with the entrepreneurs and the investors, um, we started talking a little bit about kind of the demographic breakdowns of the entrepreneurs work with. Can you talk a little bit more about if there is a profile for the type of entrepreneur you're working with? What is that profile and how are you managing your programs in a way to meet their needs and build on their <coughs> Um, it's interesting. I, th there isn't a profile, and I think that's actually really important. We get asked by the entrepreneurs all the time, "Can I see your application? What are you looking for? What is it? A you know startup? Is it pre-revenue? Is it you know million in revenue?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, no. Every sector, every person." So, it's it's actually um, the question we're asking is, "What are you doing to contribute to the close, closing the racial wealth divide in the city?" Now. You can be doing that through your ownership model. You can be doing that through your um, form of employment, the types of uh, wages you're paying and a premium to living wage. You can be doing that through workforce development. You can be doing that through the product or service that you create. Um, so we look at, we have a set of investment criteria that look at um, economic justice. So how are you closing the racial wealth divide? 
at Community Resilience, how are you strengthening the fabric of this community, and enterprise health. So not so instead of people, planet, profit, it's those three, and it's not how profitable are you, it's how healthy and resilient is this enterprise likely to survive the surprises that are gonna come inevitably. We want you to be able to continue. And so when we look at a prospect, when we're looking at our pipeline, we're asking those questions. And one of the things that we've learned is, and I'll give you like an example. So if I'm given the opportunity to invest in a white-owned green dry cleaning company and an immigrant-owned toxic dry cleaning company, I'm gonna choose the latter because it's really easy to green a just company and it's really hard to make just a green company if it isn't already. And so we work with all of the entrepreneurs that we talked about. How are we going to move you more powerfully toward economic justice? Either you're already there, like the CERO that I talked about, which is the profile, you know, uh, worker ownership, owned by and controlled by communities of color and green jobs, it's all there. If it's not, and it's kind of partway there, so let's say I've got an almost just, but it's you know white-owned, the ownership and the board are not diverse, I'm not seeing that, but the job, the job creation is really good, then I can use what we call impact covenants. I can write into their term sheets covenants that are both incentives and punishments on, on how they perform on a set of criteria. So let's say that I've got a, a compensation ratio between the highest paid worker and the lowest paid worker and I don't want it to exceed 10 to 1, I can write into the term sheet, if you go to 15 to 1, you're going to get a 1% increase on your interest rate. If you go to 5 to 1, you're going to get a 1% decrease on your interest rate or any number of toggles I can use to incent the behavior that we want. And that's in partnership. So the, the entrepreneurs that we work with, know that they're going to have to work with that dynamic and a lot of people are going to opt out of that. They're going to be like, I, that, I actually don't really have that agenda and I don't want your capital bad enough to go through that. Or the entrepreneurs are like, you know what, that is awesome. I actually want that. I want that as protection so that my mission is baked in and when other investors come along, I can show them a term sheet that holds me to that and it protects me from if I'm really successful and some of our enterprises have been and conventional capital comes in, they know that they've got themselves and us keeping them you know, aligned with that mission that they had from the beginning. So for us, it's really mission focused. The other thing I'll say on the people side and is, is um, not unlike what Lucas said about UGMA, we're, we're also we're a 501c3 charitable loan fund where we are saying we can't just create equitable access to capital on the entrepreneur side we actually need to create equitable access to investing, right? So it's not just wealthy people and institutions who get to invest in mission-aligned work. So we democratizing access to investing means raising capital from non-accredited investors as well as accredited investors and institutions so that someone who lives in Mattapan can put money into in a fund that invests in enterprises in Mattapan. So that's a critical piece for us as well as like how do we democratize both the sources and the uses of capital. So um, I'll give an example of uh, <clears throat> one of our uh, entrepreneur graduates who, as I'll describe, she, she, well, she's quite successful. She's representative in many ways. So there's a, <clears throat> a woman named Damaris. Uh, she is an immigrant from Dominican Republic. She lives in Lawrence. Lawrence is two-thirds, three-quarters made up of Dominican Republican immigrants and their children. Um, 
she and her husband uh, in the 2008 financial catastrophe lost their jobs. <coughs> and in this story, um, she uh, was received um, food stamps um, and had the choice, because they have children, to go and use them in the way that they're supposed to be used and, and buy food and groceries and the rest. But instead, she chose to go buy ingredients at a grocery store to make the baked goods from her home that uh, she had made for her family and thought there was a market for out there. So flan and other, um, uh, I think, sugary uh, uh, items that she knew she could then sell, which she did. And she turned a profit of you know some four times and thought, I can do this again. I can buy more ingredients, right? So she started doing this from her home. <coughs> she became aware, because of the community outreach, we have a Spanish language program, E para Todos, in Florence. Um, and she went through our program, she went through the English language program um, uh, with us and uh, developed a uh, storefront. She ended up buying a building, which is not something we typically recommend for our entrepreneurs, but she has an ongoing business now of a cafe restaurant which makes these foods, serves coffee and tea, owns the building with a mortgage attached to it. She has <coughs> something like eight employees and she's shipping all throughout Massachusetts to pockets of communities uh, who want her food, most of them ethnic communities as well. So here's someone who, um, through her own, you know, accord, right? She, in, in many ways, is prototypical of her entrepreneurs. I mean, she had a, uh, a talent, didn't know how to turn it into a functioning business, right? Doing all the things businesses have to do, like have insurance, you know, know what lawyer to call and when, negotiate a bank loan and the rest. Our program helped her. She turned to her mentor team for years, right, for support and making decisions and, and uh, financial commitments. And uh, not only has a cash generating business, but actually owns equity and a piece of real estate that is likely to advance in, in value, however slowly, over the years. So in this case, I mean, three quarters of our um, graduates are, are women. Um, she is uh, a, a, an, an immigrant and a person of color, but also. 60% uh, of our entrepreneurs were unemployed at the time that they go through our program, and she was, so she's represented in that way. Um, one of the things, so it, what's terrific is she was able to pick up the phone and call her mentors and call the EFRL staff, right, for questions, is there, and that's common. I think we encourage our folk to do that. You asked about how we continue to support, um, and I mentioned some things we're doing with loan funds, but we're investing in a platform, an in, in information platform, where we will put um, educational materials, much of it's for new cities that are beyond where we can call or reach or drive to. It'll have uh, videos that teach people how to do an accelerator or a pitch contest. But in addition, our graduates can come in in, in chat rooms, right? So we're imagining that the majority of our businesses are not tech, they're not scalable. In her case, I think that's, that's representative. She has a truly local business. She can do quite well and grow it while remaining local. But there will be common questions about kitchen inspections and food sources and you know how do I file taxes now that I'm profitable. Those sort of things which this resource ought to enable our uh, alumni as they grow and change to, to find answers to. Great. Um, so I think about our people on two sides. Um, one is the entrepreneur and then one is the um, volunteers who really, I say, it's our secret sauce. Um, we have a team of 10 people. Um, I'm by far the oldest. You know, our kind of average age is 24. Uh, great, um, 
really, really motivated team. Um, but we, our team doesn't have the business expertise <coughs> in the networks, um, which, you know, is kind of our core capacity. So we get that from this network of 250 um, volunteers who are, you know, people who have been successful in business, entrepreneurs. Um, it's a very diverse community. And they really, really roll up their sleeves. I mean, we have some volunteers that, you know, for you start, you know, that might as well be on our, our staff. Um, and they bring the credibility to the whole concept. They bring the expertise. Um, and it's, it's really quite magical because you sort of ask them, like, why are you, you know, spending so much time? And they say, hey, listen, I, you know, I want to give back. I want to give back in a strategic way. I want to do what I'm good at. And, um, and they, you know, they feel like they can work with an entrepreneur for a couple hours and it can be transformational, um, absolutely. So that, that is that side of the people equation. And then on the entrepreneur side of the equation, um, we really, you know, we see all ages, all gender, it's complete diverse pipeline. I, I wish it was even more diverse from, you know, considering <coughs> characteristics. But the thing that we really look for is um, motivation and coachability because uh, that's the core of our model. And if someone comes in believing that they, you know, have the answer and know everything and are not adaptable, like we're just not valuable for them. Um, so that's, uh, that is really, you know, sort of our core, I would say our core two people. If I think about pipeline that we're really um, targeting, uh, we have a university program. There are 11 colleges and universities in Rhode Island, so all within sort of a 45-minute drive, I guess, you have the same sort of uh, great um, opportunity and assets in this community as well. And we work very actively to recruit students into our pipeline. And for Rhode Island, part of that equation is we want talent retention. So we really believe if we get a, you know, a Brown student or a RISD student or a Johnson Wales student to, to integrate into our community, the likelihood of them um, launching their business and staying in Rhode Island increases exponentially. Um, the challenge, though, is this capital piece. Because they're like, well, I could go to New York or to Boston, and there's a lot, there's a lot more capital available. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I think with uh, in, in 2018, our goal with the aging space is is really not only to work with entrepreneurs to create innovations that improve conditions for people who are aging. Um, but really to, to mobilize um, an older population and get them to consider entrepreneurship as an encore career. Um, so that's, that's sort of our people, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Great, and let's talk about the capital piece. Um, there are lots of investors out there who are along a spectrum, probably less so who are kind of self-proclaimed activist investors, and you know there's the more traditional ones, but there's a lot in the middle, and so, what sort of learning are you in your program seeing that you need to do in order to prepare investors to support these entrepreneurs? I know in our work at Social Innovation Forum, there's investors who are saying, I'm an impact investor, or I care about this. 
but they don't actually know how to make the deals happen and when they get down to it they're not sure how much they care about impact or profits and so what sort of programs or learning have you seen need to happen to prepare other investors you're trying to bring in and what are some maybe innovative deal structures you've seen actually happen what does it look like when you get an investor who's maybe you know outside of um yeah investing in one of these companies um direct investing is really hard mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it's i think people um so there's a lot of good environments out there for angel type of investing you can be a part of investor circle you can be part of different investor funds where you can do direct investing in a, in a network of support um, but there is very little out there for the full range as you're talking about Anna the full range where the kind of capital that's needed for most of the enterprises that you guys are dealing with that we're meeting is layering capital a capital stack that's made up of very diverse slivers of capital there might be, we've done this, where we might provide a grant for a feasibility study, and then there's an unsecured loan that we're like, oh, we might lose our shirts on that one. And then there's some collateralized debt, and there's lots of collateralized debt out there. Like, that is saturated. There's no shortage of collateralized debt. Do people know what I'm talking about? Yeah. No, I don't know. Okay. So, so yeah, I was I'm realizing I, there's a mixed audience. So. In terms of capital, if, if we think about generally the way capital is organized is it's organized around the capital type. So venture capitalists are doing this kind of equity, and it's even more specific than that. These are doing mezzanine, these are doing seed. Then you've got debt, debt that's secured, meaning there's something behind it, debt that, that, that has nothing behind it. You've got royalty debt, which has something to do with getting paid back based on sales or on a different kind of return. You've got all these different structures. And the entities that provide capital in those different structures are usually very, very separate from one another. When you get into the impact space, it's incredible, unless you're, let me say, my narrow version of the impact space. I'm not talking about big public equities impact investing, I'm talking about direct. And when you're going direct, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get a great piece of a single type of capital into an, an enterprise. And so the dilemma is you have to become really sophisticated about the capital continuum from grant capital, recoverable, blah, 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 all the way through. Unless you're going to make that your profession, it is really hard. Now this is not to like sell ourselves, but that's why funds exist. <laughs> so that you can sort of say maybe unless I want to play over here a little bit of equity or I want to do maybe some direct grant making. You know, you sort of say, I've, got, I've actually got to find an intermediary if I'm going to be in this space because it is really complex. And now you also get into things like new market tax credits and all kinds of quasi-government entities. It is a mess. So I don't want to discourage anyone. It's saying that when you want to get involved on the investing side, if it's impact investing, it's understanding that you're either going very, very narrow and building around a particular kind of capital or you actually need to go broad and either you need to get educated on the whole continuum or you need to partner with others that are finding ways to layer complex forms of capital because we can't pull this off with pure market dynamics alone. We actually do need philanthropy capital in this space. Usually it's first loss or it's a loan guarantee. It's or, or in my case, it's the cost of running a fund is philanthropic because you can't make money doing this, right? the way we're doing it. 
So understanding that it's a very complex emergent space that's trying to make a correction for what's happened as a result in the marketplace, and we need to source from a little bit of everywhere. So very complex. I'm going to paint a little bit of a different picture. So I, 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 I mentioned we've had companies started that Deborah's organization and others have funded to serious levels. And I've mentioned I've brought some of our graduates to angel investment groups. Um, I mentioned the low interest rate loans and some grants and so on. But here's, here's a portrait, right? Um, the, uh, in the communities where we go, <coughs> I mentioned the high poverty levels. And if you study America today, the income distribution, you talk about the wealth distribution, but the income distribution, the volatility of income is very, very high among the bottom two quintiles, you know, 40% roughly. And you can see depictions of this that have been uh, come out. The, <coughs> the range of incomes can swing 50% and more, right? It's a mixture of the gig economy, it's a mixture of, um, uh, family needs taking precedence. It's a mixture of the lack of savings that those in the lower incomes can have. When we, as we survey the impact that our entrepreneurs are having in their community, we've studied them about, um, so what, what percent of your income do you get from your startups? <clears throat> and what percent is that from all your income, right? And given the demographic and the profile that I hope I've described, we have graduates who uh, devote themselves 100% to their startups and get all their income from them. But what we've learned is, not surprisingly, is many do something else while they work, continue to work on their startup. And while I know the data show that the average is not representative, the average is that about 40% of their annual income, our entrepreneurs um, get, from, get from their startup represents about 40% of their total from other sources. And that 40% brings them up to the median for families in their cities. So what I think, the, the, those enterprises are not likely to be um, uh, investable assets even for a typical impact investor, right, except on the most minute scale. Some will grow, and some have grown, as you know. But really what we're um, doing, at least in the short term, the short term being five years, um, is we're empowering individuals uh, to help take their economic future into their own hands, learn skills that they're going to take with them whether this enterprise fails or succeeds, and in the process, you know, helping to reduce that volatility for many of them um, uh, and ensure themselves against the, the crises that can come. I've read, as I'm sure you have, that amongst the lower income individuals in America, the savings level that you described, it can be so low that a catastrophe, you know, a, a broken axle on a car that prevents you from getting your job or severe illness can be totally catastrophic, right? And I think a lot of what we're, what the people who go through our programs are experiencing is buffers that help them both for acceleration of their economic growth in the future as well as protection from maladies. Yeah. A little bit about what your organization yeah. does. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> mysterious yeah. over here. Um, so the, the Social Innovation Forum is a, a capacity building and connecting organization. We primarily run programs to help build the capacity of nonprofit organizations. We're focused hyper locally in Greater Boston, so small to medium sized groups having impact here. We run accelerator programs, kind of mini versions of accelerator programs that we call capacity camps. And um, run programs for all of our alumni, for the finalists who apply to our program but don't make it in. 
and for some of our wonderful um, nonprofit co-working members in our co-working space in downtown Boston. So we do a lot of work kind of to build the capacity of our nonprofit organizations, really to help them get the word out about what they're doing. Um, and the other half of our work is actually educating and engaging funders and investors, because similar to all of you, we see that Sure, we can prepare entrepreneurs for the world, but we actually need to prepare the world for entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done on both sides, and then a lot of work that needs to be done to create spaces to bring nonprofit leaders, social impact leaders, investors, supporters, donors, volunteers, board members together um, in a way that tries to chisel away at some of those power dynamics in the sector. So that's what we do a little bit. Um, and and I, I have so many more questions, but I can feel the questions also kind of bubbling up in the room. So I'm going to ask one more, and then I'm going to open it up, and then I'm going to wrap it up with a final question. But John, you started to talk a little bit about the, the ways that you're actually seeing and measuring impacting the community. Can you all talk a little bit about the economic impact that the work you're doing is having on the community? And or you could maybe answer, kind of, what does the place look like? Um, in an ideal world, when, when your work is done, what would the place look like that you're working? I'll start. Okay. Um, so this is one of our biggest challenges as an intermediary, really thinking about our metrics, because we're only as good as you know the outcomes of our entrepreneurs. And um, there are many challenges with sort of collecting data and tracking data. So we, we now have we say there is no exit from social enterprise greenhouse once you get involved because we continue to try to add um, value as the businesses grow. Um, so we've worked with more than um, 400 ventures in the past nine years. We're about a 50-50 split now of nonprofit for-profits. Um, and the metrics that we track are um, you know, obviously numbers of ventures that we serve and their revenue growth, their job creation, some diversity metrics within that, and, and also funds that they have raised. Um, so, you know, sort of in aggregate, um, we are tracking uh, definitely close to a million jobs that have been created. Um, the question of sort of attribution is a big one um, because, you know, there's this temptation to cherry pick like the really high potential entrepreneurs and ventures and, you know, there's always this question of, well, maybe they would have made it without our intervention anyway and it's really, you know, uh, some of the entrepreneurs that needed more of our assistance through, you know, education, access to networks, etc. Um, so that's a challenge, and then we have this really broad category of live serve, which is like all of the people that all of our businesses serve, which we really can't take credit for. So the, the other thing about moving towards this cluster approach that I'm really excited about is we're starting to say, okay, these are some changes that we want to see in our society within these clusters and we're setting metrics and measuring you know cluster or industry specific metrics that we're measuring towards and again you know that goes towards this whole strategy of like very intentional pipeline development to tr try to create the change that um, we want to see and it's not that we're the experts you know we the other thing I want to say that I think is so important um, 
about the work that we do that I've just been shocked about is we, because we have this co-working space now, we've really become sort of a very, um, I would say, uh, just trusted convener. And so we're bringing together all of these players that are working on all of these issues. And it's shocking to me that they don't know each other exists. And the, you know, the, the sort of benefit that can come out of the collaboration and hopefully the reduction of um, redundancy is magical. And then just one more point, I mean, uh, we've also seen entrepreneurs start businesses that, ha that, that have gone through our accelerator that have failed, and then they go, but they, they've gotten the bug, and they're like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. And so we're trying to also track just this concept of like, uh, well, we, in, you know, somehow helped that person become an entrepreneur or feel empowered, but it's all, it's like super challenging. And no one wants to fund it, of course. <laughs> but everyone wants the, you know, you need the good metrics, so. So we measure essentially the same metrics as you, so I won't re uh, repeat them. They're on our website, um, and, you know, we think about job creation and sales and so on. They're, they're, they're pretty good. Um, on, those are things that are measurable, and we measure the ones from our accelerated graduates. And we take those, and so as an example, now that we're speaking to several potential new sites around the country, we show them, we, we were looking for a three-year commitment in a two-person operation that, in our opinion, is pretty lean, creating networks of you know, around 100 volunteers over time to help facilitate the, the site operation. And for that money, this is what our data shows from the first site we started, how much money will be raised. It's a seven times return. Look at all the jobs created, over 200. Look at the sales generated from the first three years of producing roughly 90 accelerated graduates. Um, it's something like $5 million on an annual basis after the fourth year. So that kind of return on investment, if you will, seems to be compelling, as I think it should be. Um, to our funders, we do a different but similar calculation for our own growth. You know, look, look, look at the impact if we go to 40 cities, 50 cities, 60 cities. What, um, to pick up on what Kelly said, what's hard to measure, and we know there's an effect, is what's actually happening in the communities there, right? And, and um, I think if we try to measure it, it we're going to be guilty of, you know, your assumptions drive the answer, right? Um, so we know that if, if each site puts through uh, 30 accelerator graduates in a year. We also know that they touch some 200 entrepreneurs during the course of the year, and that's advice, uh, panels, information, pitch contests, including funding as well. But then we also know that you know when you have uh, enterprises in the cities that are blossoming, you know the payroll of their employees gets spent typically locally, right? When you, when some of many of our uh, enterprises are nonprofits and they're doing urban gardens, helping the you know the quality of uh, food in, in the area, or we have one that uh, works to provide new clothing and toiletries for homeless children in the local school systems, right? I mean, and their graduation rates as a result are adopted. I mean, you could you can presume the knock-on effects of what what's happening. So we don't measure, but clearly there is something happening. The longer we're in um, these communities with, if nothing else, inspiration from people who have taken their economic lives in their own hands, done something that is visible to the community, benefiting themselves and their employees and their immediate surroundings as well, that we think, we can't measure, changes sort of the nature of how people think of opportunity. Yeah. 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 Yeah
and and uh, challenges. So I think the same thing from all of us, right? Which is there's one set of measurements about our own work, my portfolio, your your graduates, et cetera, your people participating. And that is a proxy for an assumption, which is that the effect of our work will be to stabilize or strengthen or, or you know help this community move out of poverty and really thrive. And so for for us, because the purpose of the portfolio is so directly closing the racial wealth divide, the effect, the place would look different if in the communities that have been most disinvested, the ownership and control of buildings, of land, and of the means of production in those communities reflects the population who live there, presuming they haven't been displaced yet, right? So, so what we, we know that, we, yes, in our theory of change, the ownership and control of assets is the essential thing that we believe we're building here. And so we originally were like, we're not doing real estate. And then we're like, oh, we got to do real estate. Because if you, if you live in a place like Boston, you live in a place like Providence, where, you know, the problem most entrepreneurs are facing, actually, I don't know about Providence, but the problem most entrepreneurs are facing here is they can't afford their leases. So they're being displaced. So now we actually have to put real estate commercial. There's plenty of stuff going on on the housing side. Put commercial real estate back into the control, either through direct ownership or through land trusts, where it's a governance choice about it, um, controlling it so it's not displaced. And now when that community owns its asset base and is producing goods and services for itself, we're then making the assumption that you'll see other outcomes in education, health, et cetera. Um, so that is, that is the underlying assumption. That is measurable, but that is measurable 20 years out. That's not measurable today. Right? So we will, as a proxy, look at, among our enterprises, our entrepreneurs, who does actually have control over their land or their building, and who is increasing their productive capacity, and who's, who is paying a premium to a living wage. Right? But ultimately, it's in order to get to a profile of a community that has back control over its own asset base. Great, thank you. I'm going to open it up for questions. We don't have a ton of time. So please try to keep your questions general and short. Okay, we're gonna go in a green t-shirt and you know you're looking behind you, but it's okay. Oh, yeah. uh, so you got your hand question up. about, so I went to school in rural Maine and it seems like across New England, there's, uh, there's this brand of rural poverty, which can also be <coughs> taxing and difficult for entrepreneurs to break out of. So I'm curious, you know, from your experience in the field, are, are your models also translatable to you know, the broader New England communities, the, the rural areas as well? Yeah, can I start with an answer? So I yeah. was on a panel at Advanced Leadership Initiative, and one of the current fellows had been an Undersecretary of Agriculture in the Obama administration, and he was just shaking with excitement, right? Because of all the rural needs across America for this. Um, and what I told him was, in our current model, to your question, the answer is no. Because without a critical mass of you know tens of thousands, with like 70 to 150 to 200,000 in a city and its surrounding areas, we don't think, we don't believe, we can get the critical mass of entrepreneurs, mentors, supporters, and sponsors on a regular basis year after year. Because it is high touch and there's physical meeting required. However. With the system we're building, right, we anticipate we're going to have mentors online through Zoom or other chat, which we already done do and use, and they needn't be in the same community at that point. And if that's the case, then 
before long, there could be virtual communities, right, which could encompass far bigger and far more spread out geographic areas linked by something more common like an industry, like food or something like that. So that's a hypothesis, right? So the answer right now is no, but in four years, the answer may be yes. Yeah. So I love this point about um, being able to make direct investments and, and having to kind of layer what that looks like. So I'd love to hear from you two what support you've seen from the philanthropic community and from you um, how philanthropy can either partner with folks in the impact investing space or build that um, capacity or set of skills into how they think about funding some of the organizations they support. One of the things that we've really tried to do is kind of aggregate the investing community so that we can do this layering because it's definitely like in the early stage everyone wants a grant regardless of whether they're a for-profit or non-profit. Um, and uh, so it's sort of like being very, again back to this point of convening, like being very open about pipeline and what the opportunities are and building up this community. Um, and, and I mean, I'm just constant, like I'm the matchmaker for social uh, entrepreneurs in the state of Rhode Island. I'm just constantly, you know, saying, okay, well, I know this family foundation that has these interests that's interested in that, but it, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not an expert on the landscape here, but the landscape in Rhode Island is just, it's so competitive for the philanthropic, you know, the philanthropic funding as well as investment. Um, we in our funding have uh, raised money uh, from either formal venture philanthropy foundations or um, uh, the, the monies that are available in philanthropy from uh, successful entrepreneurs, wealthy individuals, right, uh, including their private foundations. And so the notion of inclusive entrepreneurship seems to resonate today more than before. Uh, there are now conferences and major foundations that focus a lot of their money on it. Um, and the approach that we've taken, where we're going to uh, do experiments, right? And we literally treat ourselves as, as a startup. What works, what needs to be done differently to uh, uh, give good service to the Spanish-speaking populations in Spanish, that sort of thing. Has, but we need to measure our results. We need to try things and stop doing them if they're not working, which we did in our early years. Um, and finally show, basically, this is what we tell you we will achieve, and you can hold us accountable to it. So that's us. And many of our um, graduates, particularly the ones who have a social purpose, we don't have that many B Corps formally, but we have huge numbers. All of our nonprofits, which is maybe 25% of our graduates, and then many of our graduates have a social purpose or claim to, and the number of people whom they tell us in surveys they impact for improvement is, is huge, right? hundreds of thousands. Many of them have come to the attention of funders who know of us, but go then to our graduates. So we've had several win $100,000 grants from Cummins Foundation is, is an example, right? Um, uh, and uh, at least one has also become funded by the same venture philanthropist. So um, we talked about you know, the challenges of raising uh, capital for the businesses and how we are doing, which is better than I might have guessed, but not as well as I would like. But I think if I'm answering your question, there, there is a case to be made, I think, of uh, an innovative model that can track its results and be held accountable to them. And if we don't produce those results in new areas, we can't expect to continue getting funding for ourselves or our graduates.
Um, I just came from a day um, in D.C. on Thursday that was a place-based impact initiative gathering, and it was all community foundations, a couple big national foundations, and me, so a little fish out of water, but they were basically all recognizing we need to do place-based impact investing. We need to do it with our PRIs and our MRIs, meaning our program money should go out as debt to these programs, and our endowment money, that's the big, so think about, you, you're the Boston Foundation, and 95% of your assets are going every day to Wall Street. And so you've got 5% of your money doing your mission, which is place. Your mission is place. A community foundation is devoted to place. So these foundations are all realizing, oh my goodness, I should not only be putting some of my 5% of my program assets into place, but I ought to be doing that, and I don't know how. And I have two obstacles, my investment committee and my gatekeeper, my investment advisory firm who's going to tell me to maximize my return no matter what. And so there's a lot of work to be done on, the, so there's a, actually an appetite really rising up very strongly right now nationally, in a lot of places, rural and urban, to move philanthropic money into this space. Mm -hmm. And there's, I either don't know, I don't have the staff capacity to do direct deals, I'm being blocked by um, a mindset that is maximize as much as you can on Wall Street so you can maximize your giveaway. So the two sides of the house being so separate and a real appetite to start to integrate that and break down that barrier. And just to jump in from Social Innovation Forum's perspective, we gather with a group of funders locally called the Social Justice Funders Network, and they're thinking a lot about how we can get funders to expand their framework from, I care about workforce development, I care about job creation, I care about racial equity, <coughs> seeing kind of an intersectionality, and they might not have the analysis of this solidarity economy movement. Um, but how can we help them think about grant making and their endowment in terms of maximizing both kind of equity and redistribution and democracy and control? And so, you know, foundations can fund like the Fight for 15, and that's really great. That's high on equity and just redistribution of wealth that can change people's lives. But it's still not, it still has the traditional kind of mechanisms of control between wage labor. And so, how are we broadening what we're thinking about in terms of? funding things that change the system versus helping people to work within a system that wasn't designed for them. So we have one minute. Folks may be able to stick around for questions, um, but just to wrap it up, either a closing thought or, you know, we as individuals, and most might be entrepreneurs, some of us, not pointing to anyone, might be <laughs> investors, um, how can we as individuals go out and live our lives in whatever community we're in with this mindset? What can we do to support the local community, local entrepreneurs, and kind of put our capital to work. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> we have one minute total. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so okay. No, but but be asking everywhere you go, right? Which is if if we keep an inclusion mindset on all the time, it will look, look at this panel composition, right? Everywhere you go, to start challenging and asking the question of whose voice and whose power and whose capital has an opportunity to be represented here. And so if we do that with the way we purchase individually, we do that when we show up in workspaces, we do that when we show up in community spaces, we just start asking about the underlying construct of the system and challenge it and bring it to the foreground everywhere, I think we could all carry that responsibility and that you start seeing changes in models as a result of that. Yeah, the, um, I mean, this is, 
right now there, there is this upswell of people who want to do things with their lives that help others in a way that um, wasn't so present when I was in school. And um, for those of you who want to give back as part of your professions and help do things that have social benefit, that's wonderful. For those of you who, you know, like me, went to a school like this and have a means about you in your future life, um, there are going to be opportunities for you to get involved, to get out of your personal comfort zone. We can be very much a gated community where we speak to people who are just like us in our own communities, like-minded, whether liberal or conservative, and you can change that yourself and get involved with any of these organizations who want your time, talent, etc. I don't really have much to add. <laughs> <laughs> I just say, like, look, listen, and, and learn, and, um, you know, don't assume that you, you know, know the solutions, but um, learn from others. Yeah. Visit Providence. Get out of Boston, too. <laughs> yeah, visit Providence. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Investing in Place from the Social Enterprise Conference put on by Harvard University. If you found the episode insightful, please like and share. We appreciate feedback and ideas. Please leave comments or send us a message. Our contact information is in the podcast notes. Also, thank you to Newbie Music for providing the song. It's called Starlight. A link to the artist will also be in the podcast notes. Thank you for joining us for the Impact Innovation Podcast by Rebel Methods. Join us next time to hear more on Impact Innovation. Impact Innovation.